I'm forgiven because you were forsaken and I'm accepted you were condemned I'm alive and well your spirit is within me because you died and rose again to be a, a Christian or a missionary. Think about when we say that Jesus is our King. Um, what does that mean? Even going through the book of John, we just see the just the servanthood of 
the response of the disciples um, just makes me, also makes me think of my own personal relationship with God when I confess Him as King and Lord. The understanding that I have of the Lordship of Christ means so much of my obedience and my time that I sacrifice to the Lord. When God says that we are created unto Christ to do these good works, um, what does that mean? Is it, is it an act of me trying to earn my way or, or favor to the Lord, or is it when I fully trust in what the gospel has done for me and my identity? It's, it's, it's only by the obedience of my love to Christ. And um, I want to uh, just explain uh, a missionary. What, what is a missionary? Uh, missions is not about sending missionaries, and missions is not about doing missions. Missions is about the communication of truth to men. Um, it's a quote from Paul Washington. I think that sums up um, what missions is um, very clear. And, um, I just want to pray for our missionaries um, in Ireland and China, um, Bangladesh, and just our local missionaries as well. Um, those, and, and especially a lot of us here today, people who are um, reaching out to a lot of their neighbors. Um, it's, it's a call to self-denial. Um, it's a call to o obeying the voice of the Lord. Um, and it's a call for all of us. It's something that we should be doing every day in our lives. Um, that's why the, the scriptures tell us to renew our minds um, through His Word. Um, I think the more that we focus on our own abilities, the more we, we will see that we will fail. But when we trust in more and more on Christ and in um, His power, praying that the Holy Spirit will give us boldness to do these things. And uh, and also I want to uh, mention, um, we want to try to put more, I know you used to communicate a lot of times through the app, a lot of um, events we would go out, because um, we mostly the Saturdays, everybody knows we go to the abortion clinic. Um, Sundays, we, we try to go to the Poe Mill area and try to pass out some food and give a lot of those people the word and we go downtown Greenville start passing out some literature so we want to put that on a, a calendar that way we can get people more involved you know when when Jesus gave us to, the command to go out and make disciples to teach them all the things of uh, command to you he don't, he don't just tell us that but he models that for us you know the disciples was with him for three years and he modeled that for them and a lot of us it's hard for us to, to go out and to have a spiritual conversation with people, but um, come out and just watch us, observe us, see how we have conversations with people to make people more comfortable. Um, and we just want to pray real quick. Jesus, you are our King, Lord. We thank you, Father God, for giving us all things. You have given us your Son, how much more will you freely give us all things? Think of how much of a gift it is to be redeemed, to be regenerated by the power of your gospel through the preaching of your word. I thank you for, for bold elders and men that you have raised up in this church to, to model to us, to model to us the love and the character of what does it mean preach the gospel, what does it mean to go hand in hand and making disciples and, and laying their life down for us, and I, I thank you for that, and this leadership 
that you have raised up, and I pray that you will raise up more men and women to be obedient to the call of your gospel, to first and foremost to to understand the gospel in our own life, to understand how we were redeemed, how you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And it's good news that we bring to people. People will reject this message. People will hate us. But through our love for you and foremost and for our neighbor, they will see that we love them, we care about them, even if they don't believe in the message that we have to give them. We will believe in our love. And I pray this for all of our, our missionaries. I pray that you will protect them, to strengthen them, give them hope. Um, in the darkest parts of the areas, Lord, that you, your light, the light of the face of the, of Jesus Christ will shine more and more through the gospel. And I pray all these in your name, Jesus. Amen. I own and the covenant of 
love of thy crucified Son, all praise to the Spirit, whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. All praise to the Spirit, whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine.
things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command to you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example that Jesus gave us. Um, to not only lay down his life for his friends, but for those that were still sinners. Father, uh, our praise is to you today. As the song says, our, our, the breath in our lungs, it belongs to you, and you gave it to us. And Father, so we try to return that to you today. Father, I pray that the preached word would bring glory to you. And it's in the name of your son I pray. Amen. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, open up to John 15. So just to remind you, we're still in that context of Jesus, who's in this upper room with his disciples. So it was not long before this moment that Judas was identified as the betrayer, and Judas leaves. So when you think of how this applies, when you think of the context, you have to consider all these things that are happening uh, all throughout uh, these last couple of chapters. So so what I'm going to do is I walk through John 15, 9 through verse 17. What Jesus has said are a lot of things that are very similar. Jesus speaks in a repetitious fashion a lot of the times. And so he's talked about abiding. He's talked about keeping his commandments as an, as an evidence of love for him. And he's going to say these things again. So I'm not going to go into those things because I've discussed those already in previous sermons. So if you should so choose to do so, you can find those online and get caught up that way. So, so here we are in John 15. Here's my objective today, to explore and understand more of the relationship dynamic between the vine and the branches because Jesus starts teasing out this metaphor and saying hey I am the vine my father's the vine dresser and you are the branches now what's interesting when we think of our relationship to Jesus the Bible uses a lot of different language in order to identify that and it's not all the same it's all at the same time but it's not the same we are servants we are slaves to Christ the word is doulos Paul introduces his letters all the time I am Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus a doulos I am a bond slave of Christ so we are very much identified as bond slaves of Christ but he doesn't just say that throughout the scriptures we're servants we're slaves we're friends of Jesus it says in many places that we're a friend of God or we're a friend of Jesus. And that should blow your mind. Now, the issue is that you probably think on an earthly scale about what friendship is. And we'll get into that in a little bit as we define under Jesus' terms what friendship with Christ means. We're called co-heirs with Christ. So over and over, the Scripture used different ways to identify believers. Co-heirs, servants, slaves, uh, friends, and all of these things. So... I wanted to start with that, but then to go straight into verses 9 through 15. So let me recapture that for just a second. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We're going to come back to verse 11 at the end, so I'm going to get it a little out of order. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Listen to this. You are my friends if, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. So let's lock into that for just a second. No longer do I call you servants. It doesn't mean you don't identify as servants. It doesn't mean that you're no longer a doulos. It doesn't mean that you're not a bond slave to Christ. Okay, because after this happens, Paul continues to write over and over, I'm a bond slave. I'm a bond slave. I'm a bond slave. Okay, so... The idea is not, okay, I've changed your identity. The idea is not that I've changed who you are. He's like, I'm referring to you differently here. So you are a slave. You are under your master. You are under Christ. Because even later, even later in verse 15, I think in chapter 20, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And he says, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. So he's referring to them as servants. He goes, like, you're not greater than me. You're subservient to me. So expect that if they treat me this way, they're going to treat you this way. If not, they're going to treat you this way. So he says, no longer do I call you servants. So, so trek with me on this. This doesn't mean that master has been replaced by friend. Just like friend has not replaced co-heir. Just like friend has not replaced all these other ways that we're identified as children of God. It means that in here he's saying that your master is pointing to the deep emotional and covenantal relationship he has with you all who put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's pointing to something deep. He's pointing to something very meaningful, very effectual, and very covenantal. But we are still in this master-servant relationship, but we were also in this, you know, co-heir relationship. With God, we're still in this uh, father-son relationship. These things haven't changed. But the relationship we have with Jesus is multidimensional. One might say that it's kind of complex, right? How can we be who we are as sinners but still considered co-heirs with Christ? I mean, that's wild. Right, so it takes some theological thought to say, okay, how does all this, how does all this compute? How does all this work? So Jesus, in this relationship dynamic, goes from servant to saying, now you're friend. And that's where I want to sit for just, a, for just a little bit. Okay, so all of us have friends. All of us have friends. Some friends that are great friends. Some friends that maybe aren't so great friends that maybe you might consider more of an acquaintance now. We have these different levels of relationships that we enter into with people. Let's be honest. Everybody that you meet does not become your best friend. Everybody that you meet, you don't just fire on all cylinders and have this great chemistry, this platonic chemistry that says, hey, we're going to be BFFs for the rest of our life. You know, my wife calls me a dreamer and an idealist, which I am. Because I think that everybody I meet has to be my best friend. You know, maybe they have to think that I'm the greatest, even though I don't think they're the greatest. And she's like, look, you just need to get over the fact that everybody's not going to think you're the greatest. Right? So we have this conversation. I've got friends in the upstate that I knew a long time ago, and then I moved here, and we're close. And I'm like, why aren't we best buddies now? We spent the summer together. Why aren't we best buddies? And it drives me nuts sometimes. She goes, hey, cool it. Maybe they just don't think you're the greatest thing. Maybe they don't think of you like you think of yourself. That's kind of hard to hear from your beloved spouse, but 
Again, I'll get onto her because she's not here to defend herself. So I have called you friends is what Jesus says. The gospel calls us, and this is borrowed from a theologian, the gospel calls us to trust Jesus as what? Savior. To submit to him as our what? King. To value him as our treasure. But it also calls us to enjoy him as a friend. And this is beautiful. You see, so your relationship to Jesus is multifaceted. It's multidimensional. We revere him. We honor him in all respects. But he is very much our friend. And this is not the first time this language was used. It's uh, Abraham has spoken of this way in James 2.23, where James says it was Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was then called a friend of of God. So there's something that happens in friendship with God at regeneration, at salvation. So it's not that you have to, okay, now I'm saved, now I have to build this friendship, because that's what you and I do. Friendships are built. Community is built. I love the fact that our uh, that Austin whenever we were whenever we had our app and we are looking at other apps now, I promise you. But but when Austin posted that uh, about building community versus finding community. You don't just find community. I, I mean, I agree with that. You might disagree with that, but it makes sense to me that you come into a, 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 a community and it's built, right? For those of you that are newer to Haven Ridge, you're building community because you don't know others the way that we know each other. And I realize that. So there's this building, working process. And so when Abraham is considered a friend of God, it's because he believes. So there's a connection between our believing and our friendship with God. And I want to mention more about that in a moment, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But before we define how Jesus defines friendship, let me give you some precautions. All right, this is kind of important because we're talking about friendship with Jesus because that's what he says in the text. You are now my friends if you keep my commandments. So he's talking to those who are believers. This doesn't just apply to the disciples. This has a universal application to all who believe because it's in the same context of the last two chapters. And you and I have already argued that the last two chapters, the context, the context is salvific. Over and over again, Lord is saying, here's how you can know that you belong to me. Here's how that people will know that you love me. All of this fits in the context of salvation. So it's keeping that same theme. He's speaking to not just 11 men, but he's speaking to anyone who would ever put on the Lord Jesus Christ in those he considers his friends. But here's, here's, the, here's the caution I want, to, I want to offer to you. Friendship with Jesus does not lessen the lordship of Jesus. And this is, this is a dangerous road to go down. Because sometimes we take advantage and we abuse friendships that we have. Why? Because ah, they're my friend, they'll forgive me. Don't apply your earthly standard of friendship... And so trivialize a friendship that Jesus says he has with you. There's still a demand for reverence in this friendship because it's not friendship by a world standard. It's, it's a supernatural friendship that comes about with salvation. So friendship doesn't lessen the lordship of Christ. It doesn't give us license to be flippant or trivial or cavalier about our relationship with Jesus. Oh, he'll forgive me because he's my buddy or he's my homeboy or some other cultural nonsense like that friendship is not an excuse for irreverence before god this 
if not crosses, tiptoes up to the line that Paul speaks of in Romans 1 or in Romans where he speaks of licentious behavior. I have Jesus, so now grace covers all these things. So my sin will increase so that grace will increase. There's a major problem with that kind of thinking and that kind of action in someone's life. And someone who is cavalier or irreverent in their friendship with Jesus is on that line because they're saying, well, he's my buddy. He'll be forgiven and be okay with anything that I do. You see, sometimes we want this Jesus that will sit on the side and pat your back, that won't challenge you, and most definitely doesn't demand anything of your life. And that's not a biblical Jesus. Jesus demands things from your life. One being holiness. One being perfection. So this is a big, big, big deal that we can't afford to get wrong. There are some faulty views of Jesus. Listen to this. What about that Jesus is just someone that listens and is there for us and someone who doesn't ask uh, anything from us. What about, uh, what about the fact that Jesus doesn't really care what you are doing as long as you're not hurting anyone else? You see, we could go on and on and on about that kind of Jesus, but the reality is when you break away from a biblical historical Jesus that is clearly identified and represented in the Scripture, what you end up with is a Jesus that is formed in your image. And that's what happens. I've heard so many times in theological discussion, that's not my Jesus. Well, we have to be very careful with that because there's one Jesus, right? And now I get it. I get it. The Mormons have a different Jesus, not an existing Jesus, but they define Jesus differently. You know, the Jehovah's Witness, they define Jesus differently. So in that sense, yeah, I get it when we say there's a different Christ, different gospel, all of that, yes. But we have to be very careful because that's a very slippery slope when we start using terminology like that's my Jesus because it just might be that you've created a Christ that is in the image that you want rather than Christ who is God eternal. Be careful not to sacrifice the holiness and the reverence of the God-man on the altar of irreverence and cultural relevance. It was not too many years ago that the shirt became popular that says Jesus is my homeboy and that kind of caught, you know, and I'm not trying to judge anybody that would wear that or something, but I would urge you to be very cautious with, with, with what could be a flippancy in our posture towards our king. Because his friendship doesn't minimize his lordship. His friendship is no substitute for his kingship. Friendship with Jesus doesn't mean do now and ask for forgiveness later, which sometimes we do with our spouses and our friends. We can afford to tarnish or damage that relationship because they're a friend. I mean, not, don't raise your hand, but how many times have you thought something like that about family? Oh, it's family. They'll forgive me. You know, when I was a younger kid, I had this, I had this mentality. I had this ideology that, you know what, I can crush my mom. I can hurt her. She's my mom. She'll always love me. And sometimes that's projected onto a relationship with Christ. Oh, he'll always love me. He'll always be there. He'll be okay. And there's an aspect of that that might be true if you're really in Christ. But there's absolutely zero room according to the standard God has set for us to be flippant with Jesus. Therefore, he's not your homeboy. Just remember that when Isaiah stood before the glory of Jesus Christ, the result was Isaiah becoming unraveled. That's what the presence of Jesus did to Isaiah. Isaiah who grumbled and complained. Isaiah who was mouthing off about Israel. And then Jesus, in his grace, decided... I'm going to show you that you're really on the same boat, Isaiah. 
You think you're so much better, but let me show you who you are compared to me. So what Jesus does in Isaiah chapter 6 is he shows a clear contrast between Jesus, the God-man, and man, the man-man. Okay? No comparison at all. Friendship with Jesus doesn't mean equality with Jesus. Becoming friends and co-heirs is not, is not, does not subvert the position Christ has as the head of all rule and authority. So that's important. Those are your cautions that I want to share with you. So how does Jesus define friendship? Because he, he says here, you know, that we are friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And that's the crux of the issue. I've called you friends. How does he define that? Because all that he has learned or heard from his father, he has made known to them. So let me be clear right now before I say these things. I'm not trying to be all Gnostic on folks, okay? Gnostic, this idea that there's this hidden secret knowledge, you know, uh, uh, that, that goes along with piety and all this stuff for salvation. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying I think it's very clear in the text that for those who are friends of God are those who are in Christ, those who are the branches attached to the vine. Okay, we've made that very clear that Jesus is speaking to all believers. He considers you friends but what does he do to those he considers friends what must have happened to you in order for you to be right with jesus your mind had to be illuminated you had to be enlightened and that happens when a heart is regenerated and then all of a sudden you have this mind because of the holy spirit that can discern the things of god because the scripture says these things are these things are only discernible through the spirit and those who cannot, cannot discern them because they don't have the Spirit of God. So hopefully you see the connection. So friendship with Jesus is best understood as a relationship in which he imparts divine knowledge exclusively to believers that can only be spiritually discerned. Let me back that up. Again, James 2.23, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And listen to this. In Genesis eighteen seventeen, to be in friendship with God or Jesus means to be brought into special understanding, a special enlightenment that only comes with being a follower of Christ because it is the Spirit of God who makes lofty the things that are discernible. So in this text, in Genesis, God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and God speaks of bringing Abraham into the intellectual framework and circle of these things because Abraham is a friend. Not only that, but you can continue looking in Ephesians. Ephesians teaches that those who are lost are in darkness. He says they are darkness. They're darkened in their understanding. You follow me? He says all of these things. John fifteen fifteen. He has made known to us the things that the Father made known to him. This is what happens when God makes us his friends. This is what happens at that point in time. So how does this apply to you? Explain. Let me explain the friendship love aspect of knowing of knowing exclusively spiritual discernible truths. Here's how this kind of works. So when hardships happen in life, right, they happen to the just and the unjust, just like the rain, the grace of God falls on the just and the unjust. Correct. So you have all of these people that experience hardships, whether they're in Christ or not. But it's the perspective or the vantage point or the response that is the dividing line for the lost who experience these hardship, they're darkened in their understanding, so they see these things as arbitrary or meaningless. They don't see hope in it. They don't have hope in the midst of it. Why? Because they're darkened in their understanding. 
They don't have the capacity by and through and from the Holy Spirit to be able to see these horrible things are happening. But I have a perspective because I've been enlightened because I'm a friend of God and all that God has shown the the son, the son has revealed to me. Maybe not all, but he has revealed these things. Don't forget that it's the Holy Spirit and his role to bring to remembrance the things that are to be remembered. That's example one. When hardships happen, those darkened in their understanding see it as arbitrary and pointless, whereas the believing world, the friends of God, see that there is a purpose and design in all hardship. Example number two, the darkened world sees man as a cluster of cells, and ultimately man has no dignity, no worth, and no value. That is the logical conclusion of the atheist argument. It just is. I've talked to atheists who would say, well, no, no, I, I, I... I don't, I, don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's true, but when you really hold them to it, if they're going to be consistent and logical, that's where it necessarily ends. Is if men are just cells, they say, well, there's morality, and every, every culture determines a morality. So they're saying that's the objective standard for morality, which is nonsense because it's relative. Because you can go from culture to culture to community to society and find different standards of morality when there has to be one longstanding objective standard for morality and that's god's law period that's god's law but the darkened world doesn't see it that way the darkened world who are darkened in their understanding they can't see it they see a cluster of cells they see no dignity no value no worth but the christian worldview is not so much that way why are there so many that stand out of the abortion clinic every single saturday because they see that life has intrinsic worth dignity and value Why is it that we look at one another and we can look at the Black Lives Matter movement? And there's a part of that that we can say, yes, because they have dignity, worth, and value. And if you go that trajectory, you're good. You see, there's this aspect or this element that we understand that people are valuable as image bearers of God. Any Christian that would say otherwise, I would challenge their Christianity. Or maybe they're a brand new believer and just don't understand the word. But every, every human being has dignity, worth, and value. And we should treat them as such. And a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, provides that. And then hopefully, with maturity, we can appropriate that reality of everybody having dignity, worth, and value. So this friendship with God has to do with knowledge, but it also has to do with sacrifice. Listen, Jesus says, you're my friend's. If you do it, I command you no longer. Well, let me, I think I went over it, so. Oh, yeah. This is my commandment that you love one another. I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down, lays down his life for his friends. We know what Jesus is talking about. He's pointing to the, to the crucifixion as an indication of his friendship to them. So there's this element of sacrifice that comes in our friendship. Jesus makes it clear that here he is going to lay down his life. For his friends. So I think in turn when we say. Okay that's what it is for God to be a friend to us. But what does it mean for us to be a friend to Jesus? I think it means that our life. Like Paul. Are always ready. To be poured out as a drink offering. I think it means that we're always ready to count the cost. We're always ready to deny ourselves. I think that's what a right friendship posture. With Jesus looks like. While Jesus chose us for fruit-bearing ministry, we cannot ignore the salvific root of this choosing. If he chose you for fruit, then he must necessarily choose you for salvation. 
Now, let me say this before I get into this. You all know that I am reformed in my soteriology, so that's how I understand this, and I'm going to unpack a few things. If you have questions, I'd love to have a conversation. That's absolutely fine. I'm just going to unpack for you how the Scripture makes sense of these things in my mind. But understand that what I'm going to say, I try to say this from a humble posture, saying there are so many things that I don't yet understand and things that I need to learn. But as I stand here, as someone who has the responsibility of trying to reveal the whole counsel of the Word of God. This is my best effort, okay? So lock in with me for a minute as I go through how this logically connects and how we rightly interact with this phrase, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Obviously, Jesus says at the end of this, I chose you to bear fruit. But I would argue that in order for us to bear fruit, there had to be a choosing for us to be saved because there's a connection with the Holy Spirit and His work in bringing fruit. And so let me walk through some of this. So Jesus says in verse 16, listen to this. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit and that your fruit should uh, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So there's this choosing process. And the reason I think that Jesus uses this language, first of all, first of all, I don't think this just applies to the 11 disciples. If this applies to 11 disciples, what about the last two chapters that we've unpacked? We would have to say that applies to 11, the 11 disciples as well, which means that we would remove ourselves from the text and say, okay, there's nothing really for us here. So I reject the idea that it's just for the 11 disciples. I think this is universal application because universally, for those who are in Christ, we get the Holy Spirit of God, right? It didn't just apply to them. It applies to all. So all these things were okay applying. I'm going to make the same application, say this is universal. This is universal in the sense that it's all who believe, all who believe in Christ. So he says, you do not choose me, but I chose you in reference. And here it is. He said this, and it is in reference to the way that this friendship is formed. Now, how is it that you and I develop friendships? We cultivate them. They're fostered. They're built, right? They're built. Some people may have gotten married through some arranged kind of a situation but even spouses before they even get married and after they get married they're still cultivating fostering and developing these relationships this is the nature of relationships however this is not this is not the nature of your relationship to jesus from the outset what happens first is affections are placed on you you're brought into fellowship through regeneration where you did not want it You were not seeking it because no one seeks God, right? You didn't want it, but just like Paul on that road, the Lord intervened. This was not a one-time, this is not descriptive, this is prescriptive. This is over and over how the Lord deals with these things when, when it comes to salvation. So under normal circumstances, friendships are built. They don't come out of a box pre-assembled. There's some assembly required. But this is not the way it works coming into a friendship with Jesus. Jesus is the initiator, and he's also the actuator of this relationship. I was firmly rooted, firmly planted in my darkness, in my own ways, in my own depravity, in my own death, right? In my own death, Ephesians 2, for we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And as a dead man, darkened in my understanding impossible to do anything apart from god john 15 impossible or maybe it's 14 and then all of a sudden i'm alive 
because he initiated and actuated this friendship with me, which brought me from death to life. So I didn't grow into a friendship. I entered into a friendship, and then that friendship developed, okay? There's some popular straw man fallacies, so let me just address those. God chose you against your will then. Yes and no. Is that not thoroughly fun and confusing? Let me explain. Yes and no. Yes, he did. Your will was enslaved to your sin nature, so you would never desire Christ apart from Christ. Listen to John 1, 12 through 13, if you don't remember it from a year ago when we went over it. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave, the, the right, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Here we go. Salvific context. Here we go. Who were born not of blood, not of will, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but the will of God. You were born salvifically, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of God, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. It was God's will imposed on you to rescue you from the domain of darkness as Antoine prayed over and brought you out of the kingdom of his beloved son. Your will was enslaved. Martin Luther wrote an iconic work called The Bondage of the Will. I encourage anybody to kind of just settle in and read it for a while. It helps so much to make clear these things that can be a bit muddy. You can do nothing apart from me, Jesus tells us. And man's will is broken. Man's will is in bondage to sin and his sin nature. So there's nothing in man or of man that would say, okay, I'm going to pursue you. This is the doctrine of radical depravity. It's like you're not going to want him because you're dead. You're not going to want him because these things are spiritually discerned and you don't have the spirit of God. You're not going to want him because apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. You're not going to want him because you're dead and your trespasses in sin. That is what it is to be in the bondage of the will. So yes, yes, he chose you against your will, but no, he did not choose you against your will. What he did was he conformed your will. So he comes to you and he regenerates your heart. He makes you new, right? For we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and according to the sons of disobedience. So we we're all wrath. We were all children of God. as the, We were all uh, children of God, ch- um, children of wrath, even as the wrath. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive. So death to alive. And in between, in those three or four verses, everything is about how dead you were, how firmly rooted in your death you were, and how you wanted nothing to do with light or life. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. So that's why I say... No, he didn't, and yes, he did. He conformed your will to his own. And this is beautiful because the idea that you came kicking and screaming is nonsense. It's straw man. It's easy to build up, easy to tear down. That's the idea of a straw man argument. It's easy to defeat those. That's why people like to build those up and then attack them. Right? It's like me setting up an arm wrestling match with my six-year-old. I'm going to destroy him. I have destroyed him. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to set that up because it's easy to tear down. Right? And that's what happens here sometimes. We build these arguments like, okay, let's interact with the text, not build a straw man. That's nonsensical. This idea of the bondage of the will is a big deal. Martin Luther wrote this iconic work years ago in the 1500s. Erasmus, his contemporary but someone that he fought against, his argument was that the fallen human will contributed its own decisive self-determining power to act in faith. That's also 
also tiptoeing very dangerous to the heresy known as Pelagianism. Luther argued that human beings are so sinful that God's sovereign grace must create and decisively fulfill every human inclination to believe and obey God. And I believe that 100%. I believe that I was darkened in my understanding. I believe that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I didn't want Jesus. I was exposed to it all the time. I heard the gospel all the time, all my life, and had nothing that I wanted to do with Jesus until one day I did. Explain that. Explain that apart from the sovereign grace of our Lord. Men are born bound to their love for darkness. John three nineteen through 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They had a love affair, a love relationship with darkness. Not one that they wanted to be free from. Not one that they wanted to remove themselves from. They had a love affair with darkness. So we didn't drag you kicking and screaming because he conformed your will by regenerating your heart, by replacing your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, by giving you eyes to see His love, His beauty, His grace, so that you truly, truly, finally at that moment, want Him. John Piper wrote a book that's an exposition of John 3 called Finally Alive. And the whole thing, 150 pages, is about God moving in and saying, you don't want me, now you do. Why? Because I've given you eyes to see. That's why they're called the doctrines of grace. Wouldn't God be more glorified if you freely chose him instead of him forcing you? Again, we shouldn't have to go there, but you wouldn't choose him. Freely you choose sin. That's your natural inclination. Romans 3, starting at verse 10, says this, None is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does this sound to you like Paul is talking about someone who might, according to their own will and desire and inclination, choose God? No. Absolutely not. Their inclinations are that of a dead heart. How does the hostile, wicked, corrupt heart make his way to God? Completely devoid of the Holy Spirit. In what universe does the Bible and its description of man apart from Christ make it possible for a man while he's dead and in darkness somehow to manage to seek God when Paul says no one seeks God? Specifically speaking of those who are not in Christ. I mean, Paul just says it as plain as day. Those who aren't in Christ, they don't seek God. Why? Because they cannot. Until God regenerates them and changes their will. If the things of God are spiritually discerned, that would necessarily mean that salvation the salvation of God is spiritually revealed. Okay, so now that we've seen the soteriological and theological meaning behind the statement, as I understand it, let's look at the practical meaning behind the statement. Again, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure that not everybody agrees with everything that, that I've said, and that's okay. Uh, I welcome uh, a conversation. I do feel that it sharpens me, and hopefully it will do the same for you. So a few more little notes about this relationship dynamic between the vine and the branches it's a relationship with purpose and intent so we saw the theological backing and now let's see the practical backing he chose you to bear fruit is what it says in the text 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that what? You should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So there's this fruit-bearing expectation, this fruit-bearing element to you being made a friend of God. So you're not brought into this position of neutrality where, well, I don't have to do anything. He just rescued me from the, from the, from the domain of darkness. Now I'm here. I'm in the light. These things are good, and it all ends there. No, that's easy believism. What is expected of you is commandment-keeping faith, as we saw just a few weeks ago. So when Jesus initiated and actuated friendship in our lives, it wasn't so that we might become his trophy or his trinket. Sometimes we have things in our life that really serve no purpose, right? Sometimes I think I don't serve my wife much purpose when I'm sitting on the couch and she's like, are you going to do something, right? So I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> I'll go to the other couch. So, you know, there's all these issues that I deal with. But, you know. Sometimes we have things in our life that are just trophies or just trinkets. I'm so guilty. Joey can attest. I'll buy things just to have them. I bought some ridiculous silver ring that I just carried around for no reason. It's a mountain. It's, it's a rock climbing ring. I don't rock climb at all. You know, I don't do that. You know, it's like rocks are hard surfaces that are going to cause my body pain. So, no. But I bought it just because I wanted it. You know, I don't know why. It's the most ridiculous thing. And I do that. I have all these things on my desk. I have things that I'm like, why do I have that? Why did I get that? What, what impulse or compulsion in me drove me to spend money on something so worthless? So there are things like that in our life, right? Neighbors, whatever. I mean, there are things like that in our, neighbor, in our, in our lives. But this is not the way it is with, with, with our, our friendship to Jesus. You're not a trinket and you're not a trophy to Jesus. And he's most definitely not a trinket or a trophy to you. When Jesus has rescued us, it's for the purpose that we might bear fruit. And that we might be pruned back and bear even more fruit and pruned back and bear even more fruit so that God might be glorified. So that God might say, this is who I am being represented through those that I've made friends. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How does how did the disciples live out their purpose? By turning the world upside down. Okay. They were just faithful. And God caused this tremendous movement. But of course this text is not exclusive to 11 disciples. To which Jesus is speaking. But it has a universal application for all who would believe. You have been chosen so that you will bear fruit. We're not saved to inactivity. We're saved to activity. Therefore the question is what about your life? What about your life? puts on display the glory of God. What can people look at in your life and say that gives evidence, credence, and validity to your profession? I think we have to ask ourselves this question probably every day. Because if you're like me, I can be lethargic, I can be stagnant, you know, and, and, and God will allow these things. Doesn't mean he's happy about it. He'll allow these things and then he'll chasten me, he'll... He'll, he'll, he'll rebuke me. He'll discipline me. He'll do what's necessary so that I don't stay there. Just like he didn't let David stay in that period of sin in his life, but brought him out of that through his kindness leading to repentance, which is why you get Psalm 51 where David's saying, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Purify me with hyssop. And David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore to me that joy. And that's the final point that I want to make. 
is that this relationship dynamic that we have as friends with Jesus is a relationship that brings about the surety or the promise of joy. Now, it doesn't mean that every day you skip down the street wanting to hug everybody you see. We've talked about that before. Joy is something much more deeper or or deeper than that. But have you ever, like me, wondered why, although we're promised the fullness of joy over and over again, these things have been written so that you may have the fullness of joy, but sometimes you just don't feel that joyful, right? Sometimes you're frustrated. Sometimes you're angry. Sometimes you might feel despondent or that hope is lost. Why is it that we just, sometimes we just aren't connecting with that joy? And it could be that our expectation or definition of joy is off, or it could be, without exploring all the possibilities for time's sake, or it could be that you've removed yourself from fellowship you've removed yourself from abiding with jesus because abiding in jesus according to the text and joy are a marriage that cannot be divorced okay that's a marriage that cannot be divorced from one another and i mentioned david and i want to mention it again you know the context when david writes psalm 51 what is david repenting of what is he writing out his repentance of his sin with bathsheba so David has this great sin with Bathsheba, and then she, he ensures that her husband would die on the front lines of battle. I mean, David worked all these things out. This is a man after God's own heart, and he ensured that these things happened because he could. He wanted to cover up his sin. He wanted to cover up his mistakes. And God graciously brings a man after his own heart to this breaking point. And David's response is, restore to me the joy of my salvation. In other words, David had stepped out of fellowship because of his sin. And although he was still with God, still a man after God's own heart, he wasn't experiencing the fullness of joy in that moment that he could have been experiencing. And I'm not saying you can't experience joy in hardship. There's a difference in hardship that is brought into your life and hardship that you've caused in your life through your sin. That has a way of kind of working against your joy. So I'm speaking in closing specifically to that. If there's something in your life that you can say, this is a sin in my life or something like that, you can't abide in Jesus and abide in your sin nature at the same time. They cancel each other out, right? They're contradictory. So abide in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, there comes with it the surety of joy. And that's what we want, and that's what I want for all of you, and that's what I want for my life. And joy is there to be found if we abide in Jesus. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, help us to abide in you constantly. Father, help us to consider consider the wonderful truths that you've given us in the Scriptures, Lord, and that we might be given to those things. Help us in our discipline Help me in my discipline, Lord, to be given to your word more often. Lord, help me to understand it better, because sometimes I, I, I struggle. Um, a lot of times I struggle. So, Lord, give me a, a better discipline. Father, give me better perseverance in that. But, Lord, also, would you help me to remember these things and make right application? Lord, would you give me a grace and a patience and mercy with others? And, Lord, would you give others grace, mercy, and patience with me? Lord, would you continue to build up the community that is Haven Ridge, this local expression of the global body of Christ? Lord, and may we truly exemplify what it is to truly love one another and therefore show the world that we really belong to you and that we are your disciples. Lord, uh, I pray that we would process all the things that were said today. Lord, if I'm in error, because I know there were some things that are debatable, 
Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be gracious with one another and process through these things. Um, Lord, I'm, I, I, I have two choices when I'm up here. Lord, I can either just ignore it as if it's not there or try to do my best with it. Lord, and I feel like it would be a detriment for the body, for the, for the, for the church, that in a way you've entrusted to me if I just left it alone. And so, Lord, I pray for grace. And, Lord, I pray that when we leave this place, we would be a right reflection of you. Lord, that you would establish and, sh- and fulfill our joy, as the Scripture says, as we abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Hey, good to see everybody here. You are dismissed.